I'm gonna stay away from killing Susan. What can you possibly do for me? Probably 90% of the cases that I do, the person that I'm sitting across from, they're like you. On a certain night, a certain thing happened with, with them and their spouse that they, they can't undo it. Picking up that body and carrying it anywhere because it was much too heavy. I think what you were gonna say was, it was much heavier than Kathy. Clochet, a wig, small guy, small, small guy, and I'm looking not pretty good. I was the worst fugitive in the world you've ever met. I can't explain it. If you back him into a corner, he'll kill you. Um, you've been shown the letter, the cadaver note. Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Tuesday, August 3rd, after presenting testimony from over 60 witnesses, over 70 stipulations, and waiting out a 14-month trial postponement, the prosecution in the trial of Robert Durst brought their case to a close. That afternoon, the jury began hearing evidence from the defense, and it is expected that in the coming days, after months of anticipation, the man himself, Robert Durst, will take the stand. As the defense attorneys and their client begin to present their narrative, we wanted to reflect on the moment that represents the starting and the ending points of the prosecution's case, the very first meeting between Robert Durst and Deputy DA John Lewin. On March 15, 2015, literally hours before true crime fans all over the nation watched the stunning finale of The Jinx, Lewin, along with two LAPD detectives, interviewed Robert Durst in a small room in the New Orleans Parish Prison, where Durst was detained after his arrest on gun charges. As we previously reported, after episode five of The Jinx aired, LAPD detectives discovered that Robert Durst had fled where he was living in Houston, Texas. Within the week, the FBI caught up with Durst in New Orleans, Louisiana. Shortly thereafter, John Lewin flew down to New Orleans and met the detectives who drove over from Houston in anticipation of this fateful meeting. Over the course of this two-and-a-half-hour interview, Lewin elicited information from Durst that became critical to the prosecution's case. During his opening statement and throughout the last three months of the trial, the prosecution has played clips of this interview for the jury. On Tuesday, the prosecution played that interview almost in its entirety for the jury, virtually the last piece of evidence entered before they rested their case. So how was Lewin able to capture this information? In this episode, we're going to examine Lewin's interview and speculate on his strategy in trying to elicit information from the often elusive Robert Durst. That's coming up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you've been following along with the trial, you might think that John Lewin operates in only one mode. Like a bulldog, the prosecutor is ferocious, unrelenting, and often on the attack, whether he's questioning a hostile witness or battling with the defense team when the jury has left the courtroom. Undeniably, Lewin has a signature style in the courtroom, but if you think that's his only look, you'd be wrong. Um, before we, we start, um, I want to let you know that um, I feel like I know you, I've never met you, I feel like I know you very well. and. Um, very interested in talking about a lot of the different things, and I know, um, you know, I know it's a, it's probably a very, you know, uncomfortable day for you right now, and you know, I, I, I understand. That's John Lewin at about 6:40 a.m. Central Time on March 15, 2015, opening his interview with Robert Durst in the New Orleans Parish Prison. Over the course of his interview with Robert Durst, Lewin employed a number of carefully crafted tactics in order to create an environment that encouraged Durst to talk about his past, his relationships, and his actions relating to all three alleged crimes. But in that opening line, Lewin, it seems, was signaling to Durst what the main theme of their conversation would be. Namely, that this would be Durst's opportunity to speak with someone who has made himself an expert on what may be the suspect's favorite subject, Bob Durst himself. As court proceedings would later show, Lewin took great pains to make sure that he conducted this conversation by the book. In other words, that the interview protected Durst's constitutional rights. He made sure that Durst was read a Miranda warning, informing him of his Fifth Amendment rights to an attorney, and as an added measure of constitutional protection, Lewin held back any criminal charges against Durst for his actions in California so Durst could not make a Sixth Amendment claim that his lawyers in that case should have been contacted before he was questioned. As the interview began, Lewin treated Durst like he was a guest in his home, not a prisoner. Detective Whalen, Mike's going to advise you of your Miranda rights. And are, you, can we, are you cold? Can we get you something? It is a little cold in here. Yeah. You, you want a blanket? Want, or you want blanket? Yeah. Yeah, I'll get you. Do you want want a drink, some coffee? Coffee would be great. When a hot coffee and an extra layer of clothing arrived, Lewin started out by pitching softballs. Uh, Your brother Doug is not your favorite person. Is that a fair statement? That's fair. There was a, um, there was a, there was a line, um, you know, we have, obviously you're aware of the jinx. Obviously. Yeah, and and there there was a line where, it was a deposition for Douglas, and they end up asking him, is it true that you hired a lawyer uh, to protect yourself against Robert Durst? And he says, yes, and very formal. And then they, then they ask you the same question. Do you remember what you answered? No. In the early stages of this interview, Lewin played the role of late-night host rather than prosecutor. Behaving like a fan and flattering Durst's brazenness, Lewin succeeded in getting Durst to open up. You were asked, um, do you know why your brother Douglas uh, 
uh, hired uh, somebody to protect you, to protect him against you, hired a bodyguard to protect him against you. Do you remember what you answered? Yeah, I said he's a pussy. Quote, I said he's a pussy, end quote. By maintaining a relaxed atmosphere, Lewin got Durst to talk about smoking pot and trying scream therapy in Southern California in the 60s. He also asked Durst about meeting Susan. However, when he asked about killing Susan, he met a roadblock. But here's what I do know. I know that when you killed Susan, that was not something you wanted to do. Do do you know how I know that? I mean, are you interested in why I know that? I'm going to stay away from killing Susan. Okay. At this point, rather than diving into a series of probing questions, Lewin did the talking. I deal, Bob, with all kinds of people. So I've been, um, uh, do you want me to tell you a little bit about, about what I do and who I am? <laughs> Whatever you want to talk to me about. It's more pleasant in here than out there. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, so I'm a, I'm a deputy DA. I've been a prosecutor for a little over 20 years. And my area, what I do, I do cold murder cases. And um, I do complex circumstantial murder cases. And, and I have dealt with all kinds of people. Um, not, not most of the people that I deal with, I have kind of a weird area. Most of the people that I prosecute, almost without exception, I do a lot of uh, guys that um, kill their wives. Um, I do a lot of no body cases. And most of the, probably 90% of the cases that I do, maybe more than that, the person that I'm sitting across from, they're, they're like you, they're, they're educated, they're smart, they're not you know, a dangerous individual, uh, they're not out committing all kinds of crimes. And for, for most of my defendants, what happened was is that on a certain night, a certain thing happened with, with them and their spouse, that they things happen, they do something they regret, and they, um, they can't undo it. Lewin then told Bob a story. I prosecuted a guy who um, was in high school, real good-looking guy, star football player, star baseball player. He's the kind of guy that peaked his junior year in high school. Lewin proceeded to recount the tale of this young man and his high school sweetheart. While it was not immediately obvious where he was going with it, over the next 10 minutes, it became clear that this man's story bore certain resemblances to Robert Durst's. Boy meets girl, boy marries girl, girl goes missing, years later, the truth comes out, boy murdered girl. And he told me that he had basically halfway convinced himself that he didn't do it. He testified at trial, and I was having him go through like how big the trunk was in his car. We thought that he had put her body in the trunk of his car in a tarp, and he had. And he said that as I was questioning him, he could actually see what he had done, and he was still trying to deny it. The point of the story is that he was a decent guy, but he's a guy that did something terrible, and he couldn't take it back. And in the end, What he ended up doing was, he ended up admitting, here's what I did, and I can tell you that I have spoken to him since then. But he has told me that, at least for him, getting it off his chest, admitting to what happened, 
um, has helped. So a, a, as you're listening, uh, I'm, I just will you at least consider listen. You'll, you'll listen to what I'm saying, right? Listening to everything you're saying. Okay. I would like to interject. At this point, Durst asked to take a bathroom break. Lewin, playing host, breezily accommodated the request. Later in the interview, Lewin spoke to the Jewish heritage that the two men share when asking Durst why he would so foolishly play into an anti-Semitic trope. Between Susan's death and Morris's death, you ended up getting a bunch of money, you know, you took it out, you had it in the car, etc. And, um, and then you got caught. But, by the way, can you tell me, I always joke, Bob, because I'm Jewish as well, and you're Jewish, you did not help our people's reputation by shoplifting the, uh, the $7 uh, sandwich. Our people get enough grief. That did not help our reputation. So can you tell me why, with all your money, what made you do that? Robert Durst's answer to that simple question seems to have a larger resonance than simply relating to the theft of a $7 sandwich. The interviews, um, Detective Cody Cazales says he wanted to get caught. And I look back at that thing, and maybe I wanted to get caught. I certainly can't explain it any other way. Um, Being a fugitive was, was not something I did well. Right. When, when I was in prison, none of the inmates could understand that at all. I mean, you had lots of money. Why'd you get caught? Right. I had lots of money. I'd never get caught. I got caught with lots of money. <laughs> but what, I can't explain it. I can't explain it to you. Right. I could, could explain you, it to the inmates. I mean, it was just ridiculous. That's one of the few things that Cody Gonzalez says that I can sort of say, well, maybe that's what, what, what it was. I hated being a fugitive. I was the worst fugitive the world has ever met. In retrospect, this answer may shed light on Durst's perception of his own general habit of self-incrimination. Lewin frequently tried to use humor to keep the atmosphere relaxed. And while it was rare for Durst to betray any hint of enjoyment or amusement, he did start riffing with his interviewer. You would, um, when, when you would talk about, you know, there's a couple expressions that, that you use that um, no matter what, what's going on, the end of them is always, I just wanted to go to bed. When Kathy wasn't going to come back, the terrorist incident with the with Anne and I think it's Kevin and Anne who lived at the Doyles next door. Do you remember that incident? Yeah, and and you were asked about it, and all you know in the they're showing you the commentary, and you're going and you're admitting it. Yeah, we had a fight, and it was raining outside, and and you're not denying anything. And then they're asking about it, and it, and and you're going, I just wanted to go to bed. Um, you always use that expression. You also always say, like, you're asking about, um, about you know, your, your wig. You know, so I, I go, I've grown a beard in the past. I mean, uh, but I can't grow one overnight. And I, I decided, you know, a close shave, a wig. Small guy. Small, small guy. And I'm looking pretty good. You'll say pretty, pretty good. In another instance of finding common ground with Durst, Lewin elicited agreement from Durst that he was not bothered by the way the movie All Good Things depicts him as responsible for the murder of three human beings. 
You know, Bob, it's uh, so all good things, you agree, present you as somebody who's responsible for three murders, right? Right. Plus something else that really bothered you. What was the thing that bothered you most about all good things? You said it to Andrew. You know? I'm killing all the dogs. Okay. So, by the way, um, are, are, you're a dog person, right? Yes. I have a, uh, I have a dog. I'm very much into my dog. Um, believe it or not, in me working on this case, you know, I, I, have, I have young kids, and my daughter was afraid. She said, hey, is, is he going to hurt us? I said, no, he's not going to hurt you. And then she said, um, is there any way that he's going to hurt um, that he's going to hurt our dog? And I said, you know what? Um, there's one thing about Bob that I'm very confident of. Bob loves dogs. Bob would never hurt a dog. You're right. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. You, you, you like you like dogs. I think much more than people. Is that right? Yes. So this is uh. He's my boy. 170 pounds. That's my basset hound. 170 pounds. 170. He is my. You know where he sleeps? I can't anywhere you want. He, he, you know what? Sleeps. He sleeps in bed with me. And I, I told my, told my daughter. Listen, Bob is somebody who. Bob doesn't kill because he enjoys killing. That's what Cody Gonzalez says. But if you back him into a corner, yep. he'll kill you. Quote, if you back him into a corner, he'll kill you, end quote. Again, Durst quotes Detective Cody Cazales, this time seeming to acknowledge that he is capable of murder if he feels trapped. Lewin then continued his tactic of finding common ground with Durst, suggesting that he was self-conscious about how Durst viewed him. All right, you made, um, do you remember the Durst Obesity Clinic? Yeah. Uh, you, you, I have that. I've seen it. Now, I would like to say that I am not a fat guy. But if I were to say that, let's face it, that would be a lie. So my, so my, my concern is, I'm hoping I will not be the Lewin Obesity Clinic cartoon. Uh, I, I always thought, you know, when Bob sees me, I'm going to end up in one of his little cartoons that he made up. But is that, is that going gonna to happen or probably not? No, I mean, there's lots of people in here that when it comes to obesity are obese and you're not. Oh, you know what, I'm gonna, when I get back, my wife and I have had this argument. My wife's in really good shape, much better shape than I am. And she's, she has said that I'm pushing obese. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna tell her that the you said we don't see obese. <laughs> in this particular instance, Lewin seems to be using an empathetic tone to guide the conversation toward Durst's view of his brother Douglas, whom Durst often described as fat. His aim seems to be to establish Durst's intentions when he showed up at his brother's Katona house. Well, uh, hey, listen, I'll, I'll take it. Um, but so, Douglas, one of the things that you tell me if I'm right about this, I think one of the reasons that you hate Douglas is that Douglas, in your mind, is a phony. He was beat me up. Did you mean physically or do you mean? I don't mean physically. I mean beat me up. My, my wife said it in in the um, the jinx. Yeah. She said Douglas wanted to steal your birthright, take over the company, you know, steal your money, um, such and such and such and such, and he's done it. 
When Durst volunteered information that didn't align with the facts that authorities had from witnesses who had come forward, Lewin likely sensed an opportunity to pin Durst down as having demonstrably lied. In one instance, Durst voluntarily brought up Peter Schwartz, the man who Durst once kicked in the head, sending him to the emergency room. However, here is how Durst recounted the assault. So tell me Peter, whatever the guy's name is, who said that I kicked him in the head. He can't remember. His Peter name. Schwartz. That's what, it. Wait, what do you mean it was with Peter? I lost you on that. Oh. He, and I think, yes, he and Kathy had gone to the police precinct to, to, to tell them that I had assaulted Peter Schwartz and kicked him in the head. While he was sitting in our apartment drinking tea. I don't think I kicked him in the head. I uh, think he was selling coke to Kathy. Okay. I got back at two o'clock Saturday night, grabbed hold of him, and the two of us fell down and he hit his head on the corner of the desk. Lewin then used what may otherwise have been inadmissible hearsay evidence, an audio clip of Ellen Traitsman, a friend of Kathy's, talking about this assault. In the clip, Tradesman recounts that Peter Schwartz was on the floor. Durst came in and kicked him in the face. It was, quote, the first time I'd ever seen any violence from Bob, end quote. She described the scene as scary and alarming. And yet, Durst maintained. You saying you never kicked Peter Schwartz in the... You didn't kick Peter Schwartz in the... I did not kick him in the head. As we reported in an earlier episode, Schwartz testified directly as to the nature of Bob's assault, accompanied by graphic photographs of his injuries. And so Lewin was able to use tradesman's hearsay to provoke Bob into an apparent lie. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas, absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. For most of the interview, Lewin maintained a jovial, non-threatening tone and continued to flatter Durst's intelligence, both when he was a fugitive and when he took the stand in Galveston. Now, listen, you were brilliant on the stand. I was so strong thought I was going to freak out, and I think even my lawyers thought there was a real good chance that I would freak out. How much, um, hey, Bob, how much of, of what you did on the stand was you and how much of it was them kind of helping in other words did you do that all yourself that was brilliant i mean i gotta tell you it was brilliant no, i mean i went over what happened repeatedly right and uh, the jury consultant robert hirschman yeah he said you can't say things like that and i had just said that well, I'm a millionaire. I don't have to work. I get up most mornings and smoke pot. And he said, our jurors are not millionaires. Right. Our jurors don't get up every morning and smoke pot. You can't walk in and say that. Just don't say it. There's no reason you should say it. Right. Don't 
say it. It's going to turn everybody off. Lewin continued to flatter Durst while he got to more serious points. And by wrapping a compliment around a difficult question, he was able to elicit the kind of response he was looking for. You said that you were really drunk and really high, etc. But you know, you went and you went to a Walmart and you got the money orders to pay Morris's rent in advance for a long time. Do you remember doing that? Sure. So that says to me that you, you clearly had to know what you were doing. That's a smart move because you did not want people to, uh, to find out. You I know. did not want the, the landlord, Klaus right. Dillman, right. to go to the house and say right. to Morris, where's the check? In the last hour of the interview, Lewin also got Durst to talk about why he was in California at the time of Susan Berman's murder. I'm just trying to figure out, because Susan was telling people near the time she died that she was upset with you because she couldn't find you, you seemed like you weren't returning your calls. She wrote you a letter. So we know that you flew out here to see flew her. out here? Flew out to Los Angeles. Um, to, I'm sorry, San Francisco on December 19th, right? We have the, you made the call for the plane. Right, you picked, you, you, you went to San, you went to uh, Eureka, you went to the Ford dealership, right? You picked up the car. And then the next day, I don't know if you know this, you know, you made phone calls for Garbersville. So where were you going? Why were you down there? I remember what exactly I was doing in Garberville, and I've tried to remember, and I really don't know. You weren't going to San Francisco, though, right? Because you had just come from San Francisco the day before, so that doesn't make sense. I wasn't going to San Francisco. So. I think, Bob, that, that you drove down to Los Angeles, that you drove down there and um, killed Susan. I do. Back. Returning to what appears to be his primary tactic, that is, being the world's foremost Robert Durst expert, Lewin drew on his knowledge of Durst's travel preferences when he asked about his unusual behavior during this trip. So the other thing is, you know, you don't take red-eye flights very often. Did you know that? Very infrequently. You would agree, right? Almost never do you take a red-eye flight. Agreed? Yes, yes. So I was trying to figure out, and usually you don't buy your tickets right at the counter. Would you agree? Usually I make reservations. Right. And, and um... So here's what's weird. You also had a pattern, which you've explained. You fly from Eureka, uh, from San Francisco to Eureka. New York, San Francisco, San Francisco to Eureka, Eureka back to San Francisco and back to New York. So on December 23rd, you end up buying that ticket at 10 at night at the counter in San Francisco. You didn't fly from Eureka, so why was it that you bought straight from San Francisco? Why didn't you go back to Eureka? What were you doing? that made you get down to San Francisco, and why? It just doesn't make sense. I was just trying to understand that. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah, I hear you, I hear you. I'm just not gonna be able to answer that because okay. I just don't. Okay, okay. Instead of pushing Durst here, Lewin kept the tone light in order to keep the conversation going and to allow Durst to spill out more on-the-record statements about his activities in California. But but you agree, it, it's hard it's to explain. Unusual. Yeah, okay. That was fair. And I couldn't even figure out why you were flying out 
you at that time you already sold your house so what made you take a four-day trip what were you doing out there do, do you remember i think i was wrapping up my affairs i had sold the house right i still had an office right i still had a car and i think i went out there to um, take my stuff out of the office it was rented and to sell the car um what did you end up doing with the car i sold it did you remember where uh you sold the car in trinidad right i had sold the house in trinidad i still had the car okay i think i sold the car in san francisco i'm just not sure what i did with that that was a ford explorer right green car they don't make them anymore it was an suv with just two doors right uh i think i mean i just don't remember where i sold it but when i went out to, just to california i was wrapping up my affairs um taking my stuff out of the office and selling the car so i just don't remember where i sold the car but but it, you agree it was very strange for you to be going out here when you were asked about it you said you were out here for a couple of weeks but yeah, that's what I thought right but you were only out there for four days four days and and you agree you didn't take four day trips to San Francisco back then not from New York right no yeah. so so as you sit here it's fair to say you really can't explain it I can't explain it at this point Lewin went in for the kill introducing the topic of the so-called cadaver note, the anonymous note sent to the Beverly Hills police informing them that there was a cadaver at the address where Susan Berman lived. However, rather than confronting Durst head-on with the accusation that he wrote the note, Lewin took an indirect approach. He asked Durst about his prior statements regarding the handwriting on the note and its similarity to his own. So when we get to the writing, um, you've been shown the letter and the cadaver note and your response was when you saw it I'm not going to show it to you you know what you said right you remember what you said when you saw it when Mark and Andrew showed you right they asked me um, why somebody would do that uh, I said, it's block letters, they're trying to disguise their handwriting. Durst thus seemed to lock himself into his assertion that he did not write the note. Lewin then anticipated that he might one day be able to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Durst did in fact write the note, and asked if Durst would acknowledge the likelihood that the writer of the note had to be Susan Berman's killer. So first of all, you agree, as you sit here today, you agree that whoever wrote that letter they killed Susan. Agreed? You see, I don't know that. I mean, maybe there were two people who killed Susan. Okay. It doesn't have to be one person. There could be two people. One, pe one person could go into the house to shoot Susan, and the other person could be the driver. Oh, oh, oh okay. No, let me, let me, this is what I mean. Whether the person was the shooter or the driver, whoever wrote the note, was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. 
Of course, we now know that Robert Durst changed his story just weeks before the beginning of the trial and acknowledged through his lawyers that he was in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's death, that he found her body, and that he did in fact write the cadaver note. And so that statement by Robert Durst, quote, whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death, end quote, stands as the culminating moment of John Lewin's interview of Durst and, the prosecution argues, turns this statement into a confession. There were a couple of loose ends left by Lewin that become tantalizing with the prospect of Lewin cross-examining Durst in this trial. One notable thread that was left dangling at the end of the interview was a question Lewin asked about Durst's alleged involvement in Kathy's death. I'm just looking for it. You had a very interesting comment. When you listen to this, Bob, you sound like you say, well, I decided I would wait until I would pick it up and carry it out. And then I realized I wasn't picking up picking up that body and carrying it anywhere because it was much too and you, heavy. And you stopped and you stopped yourself. I think what you were going to say was it was much heavier than Kathy. Listen for a second. Since the audio clip in the interview is difficult to hear, we're going to play the same clip from another source that was entered into evidence. So what did you decide to do to get rid of the body? Well, I decided I'd wait till night and I'd pick it up and carry it out of there. And then I realized I wasn't picking up that body and carrying it anywhere because it was much, I mean, I wasn't strong enough to do that. I could drag it out, but I just couldn't see. I mean, I thought about putting it in a sleeping bag or something and then dragging the whole thing out, but good God, that's ridiculous. So you decided instead? I decided to, it wasn't until the next day when I went, I can't just drag it out. Uh, I'm gonna have to dismember this body. While Durst chose not to comment on this allegation, it seems likely that Lewin will bring it up once again when Durst takes the stand. Another thread worth noting is that back in 2015, Robert Durst thought that by agreeing to this interview, he might earn some type of bargaining chip with Lewin. So I would like to, are you willing to continue? You're gonna be going to court right now. Um, you know, it's, it's like I said before, this is all voluntary. It's been- No, no, I hear you and I have no problem with what you're saying. Okay. But what's going through my mind is, sure. if I tell you what I know okay. that answers your questions. What can you possibly do for me? Okay, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what. If you are willing to speak to me when you get back from court, we can talk about that. I'm very willing to talk to you and as I, as I said, I'm 72. Okay, so now what would I ask for? Tell me. If I tell you those things, I'm pleading guilty. Okay. And I'm pleading guilty. I'm going to be going back to Los Angeles, to California, and doing my time. Well, I have a question. Is there, so for instance, something that, not, and I, that I would have to see is, would it be better doing your time in a different place? Yes, yes, yes. That's just what we're getting okay, to. Okay, tell me. What could you do? Well, I don't know what the question is yet. Well, so that I don't know. I mean, I can't say, listen, I would like to go to that prison there. Okay. I am going to be very honest with you. You understand that at this point in time, that in my opinion, I'm pretty confident of this, you're not going to see outside again as a free man. 
I mean, I, 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 and I, I think you, you, under, you understand that, right? So if I was to accept that, I'm not going to be out of prison. Now the question is, where do I want to spend my time? And I'm going to be, you know, assuming we can come up with something, that's about all I can think of okay. that you could do for me. And as I see it, all you could do for me is to tell me that this is the best prison in California, and then I will recommend you go there. As the defense begins to present their case, we'll continue to bring you the latest trial updates, including Robert Durst's much-anticipated testimony. That's coming up later this week. For now, we'd like to welcome back reporter Charlie Bagley to discuss the latest trial developments. Charlie, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me again. So today on this podcast, we reviewed the interview between Robert Durst and Deputy DA John Lewin in New Orleans. Charlie, what are your top takeaways from that interview? If you only watch a part of John Lewin, you'd think of him as a very blunt instrument. But I think this was an interview that was very subtle. I mean, you could almost imagine the checklist he had in his head. You know, he's going to march us through uh, Kathy. He's going to go through Susan. He's going to go through Morris Black. He, he's just constantly probing, and none of them are idle questions. But I, I, I think most importantly, in the very beginning, he starts out by complimenting Bob. You know, he, he says, you know, the thing I admire about you is that 90% of the time, you're very blunt in the way that you tell the truth. And I love that. He tries to relate to him about dogs. So they had something in common. But then when when he asked Bob, so why did you sit down with those guys from the Jinx? And Bob says, oh, I, I was on meth the whole time. And John very subtly offers a, a, a stick, I suppose, if everything else was carrot. He, he says, well, wait a minute, Bob, what are you, what are you saying? And, and Bob immediately backs off and says, well, uh, I, I, I don't take back anything I said. My answers were my answers. And John had already marched him through a, a lot of stuff. I thought it was brilliant. Brittany, you've taken a deep dive into that interview. What struck you about it? What were your top takeaways? I was really struck by John Lewin's demeanor in this interview, um, you know, partially because it was somewhat out of character from the way he is in court, but even more than how he presented himself as the world's foremost expert on Robert Durst, it, he also seemed like he was presenting himself as Robert Durst's biggest fan, um, it, like as if he, this was like some kind of a talk show and he was welcoming him on to the couch to say, you know, my God, uh, some of your greatest hits were in Galveston. And it reminded me, there's this famous Chris Farley sketch on Saturday Night Live where he's interviewing Paul McCartney and he's saying, remember when you you crossed Abbey Road? And Paul McCartney's like, yeah. And he's like, that was awesome. Like, all he could say was, you were brilliant. And, you know, I mean, we know, of course, where he's going and we know what he's after. And he didn't get everything I think he was looking for. Um, there was that one really interesting piece about Kathy and whether or not Morris Black was, you know, harder to lift than she would have been. But, you know, mostly he really got what he was looking for. 
Yeah, I, I was amazed that he got Durst to say whoever wrote that note had to have been a part of Susan's killing. That was stunning to me. I bet in retrospect, he wishes he'd asked Bob, so you're not going to turn around and say, yeah, I found the body and I wrote the cadaver note, but I didn't kill her. I, I, I just have this instinct that if he had a little more time or if he you know, had it to do over again, that was the one last question he would have asked him just to make the reversal all the more satisfying. Okay, so one more thing before we wrap things up today. On Tuesday, August 3rd, while Prosecutor Eugene Miata read the BD story, which was a narrative of Bob's life that Bob wrote in preparation for his testimony during his Galveston trial for the murder of Morris Black, Durst stood up in court and objected. And we're going to play a clip of that objection for you right now. Galveston. I used no credit cards, wrote no checks, did not use my cell phone, or charged calls to my telephone calling cards. I paid only in cash and made all telephone calls from a payphone. Further, I made no telephone calls to anyone I knew and told no one about Galveston. Except I did not write this. This was written by somebody else. I never wrote this document. Please be seated, Mr. Durst. Thank you. And then a few moments after he made that statement, he turned his chair around and stared down Miata and cast his steely gaze into the camera. And his attorney, David Chesnoff, proceeded to turn him around away from the camera. We've prepared a full clip of that event and have posted it on our website, crimestory.com, where you can also find Charlie's latest story for crimestory.com about the Kathy McCormick Durst story, which is terrific, and everybody should go read it. Charlie, tell me what your reaction was in court when Bob stood up and objected to the BD story. Well, it, it was uh, sort of surprise and, and, and a delight because we haven't heard from Bob. It was just such a dramatic moment for him to stand up. And I, I thought it was such an interesting thing, too, to say, because you could take that to mean that this document that, you know, may have been attributed to me was actually concocted by my lawyers. Brittany, we're, we're coming upon the day where Robert Durst will take the stand, barring any last minute drama. What are you expecting when he gets up there? Well, if that clip was any indication, it does feel like we're sort of inching ever closer to him firing his entire defense team and representing himself. So I half expect him to um, get up out of his wheelchair and sashay between the witness stand and the floor and question himself. Uh, I can't wait to see. I think it's going to be the highlight so far. Awesome. There should be some eventful days ahead, Charlie and Brittany. Thanks again, both of you, for being with us and... We look forward to bringing you more episodes of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one. And head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Notabartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. <laughs>